What's up, peeps? Before you get into the episode, just a quick message. Did you know that Rebranded Safety is brought to you by Risk Fluent? Rebranded Safety is essentially our campaign to achieve our purpose, which is to make the working world better by Rebranded Safety one interaction at a time. We value a people-centered approach that delivers positive impact on the risk. We deliver three types of services, technical, transformational, and fire. It's the last show I wanted to talk to you about. If you value what we value and you want some support driving a culture change or decluttering your safety systems, or you want to improve human performance and it's our transformational support that can help you, or maybe you want a highly experienced registered fire risk assessor to carry out an assessment on your building, design an emergency plan or review the fire safety design for your new building, then it's our fire support service that can help you. But before you get in touch with us, it's important that you want to have impact on the actual risk and you value a people-centered approach. If you don't, that's fine. You'll find someone that can help you. But if you do value those, then get in touch with us at riskfluentltd.com or email me, james, at riskfluentltd.com. But for now, I'll let you get into the episode. This show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Today we're talking to a gentleman I spoke to so long ago, and he probably thinks I've not put his episode out because he probably thinks, oh, he didn't like the episode or something. No, it wasn't that. It's just we had so much content that we needed to slot it in somewhere. So I'm very conscious that this episode was recorded uber long time ago so apologies to today's guest who will tell you more about in a minute the problem in safety isn't deviation it's complexity health and safety has gone mad health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past there's no one solution and one problem the problem is that we are looking for one solution does the structure of the team allow them to flourish feel safe enough to be uncomfortable the environment defines our behaviors people aren't the problem they're the solution rebranding safety crushing a stereotype brought to you by risk fluent what's up peeps welcome back to rebranding safety rebranding safety is a youtube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin we're here to change the perception of health and safety and we do that right here on the youtube channel and podcast as well so if you're new hit that subscribe button follow button all of those magical algorithm thingamajigs today we're talking to a great gentleman a lovely guy called christian wilheim we talk about loads of stuff today with christian it's really dynamic it's really emergent kind of conversation as you know that's one of my favorite types of conversations so overall kind of talking about loads of stuff but really just got overarching tone of of kind of new safety better safety so to speak before we get into that though just a shout out from our sponsor our official sponsor of rebounding safety podcast and youtube channel is paradigm human performance and more specifically their hse subscription service the perfect solution for those small medium-sized enterprises that are really struggling to kind of juggle all the balls, spin all the plates and so on. And maybe sometimes safety is just that thing that just sits there, which is normally fine, but ultimately when things hit the proverbial fan, then you're up the creek without a paddle. And this is where this subscription service comes in. Paradigm Human Performance are a human performance expert consultancy. So they're now providing this HSE subscription service to kind of tick so those compliance bo- boxes to make sure that people have got their legal, regulatory and industry compliance uh, all sorted so then they can take the next step into human organisational performance. But what makes this stand out is 
it's got hot woven through it. It's not the kind of system that you need to declutter later on. So it's that perfect solution for those people that just want to get compliant and then they know they want to go into that next step of human and organizational performance. So if you want to get worker safety uh, part of your DNA, if you want to be able to utilize the expertise, the subject matter expertise of the worker, then this is the solution for you. And you can do all that whilst ticking all of those compliance, regulatory, legal and industry compliance boxes and all that. Starting from £99 a month, depending on the size and, and what you need and so on. You can contact Paradigm Human Performance with the email address, phone number and website in the description below. If you're still not sure, go to the website and check out the Learning Organisation webinar. That's Paradigm's webinar runs every Thursday at 2 p.m. It's an absolute outstanding resource of just amazing, amazing information and quality content, beautiful quality conversations. And the best of it is, is once you register it, you can get access to the whole backlog. So we're talking like nearly two years worth of content. That's about an hour and a half at each webinar. So you've just got hours and hours and hours of content that you can just absorb. So make sure you go check that out. Thank you, Paradigm, for sponsoring Rebranding Safety. And just a shout out from my company, uh, Project Miletium. So Rebranding Safety is also sponsored by me. Um, and Colin Nottage. Uh, so me and Colin Nottage founded a company called Project Miletium. Project Miletium is a mastermind community. It's a membership business. It's a membership organization aimed to build a community of authentic, empathetic and understanding safety professionals that just exist together, that want to help each other out. And we facilitate weekly community calls, which are really loose and fast. And we kind of get in or we, we either talk about a, a topic or we get into someone's challenge. If someone's having a problem or something they need some help with, they'll bring it up and, and we just all dive in to help them out. We also run a book club every month, which is a great opportunity to understand what other people have learned from the book that you've read. We also run a philosophy call. As far as we're aware, it's the only place that's actively talking about philosophical things around safety, actually having those philosophical discussions to really get into the depths of what are these things that we're talking about? What does safe actually mean? What is risk? And um, fundamentally, if we don't understand the philosophical side of what we're talking about, then everything is built on a foundation of sand. So we do that monthly. And then finally, we do quarterly wagon wheels, we call them, but they're like mastermind events. We have a keynote, then we do workshops, and then we have a keynote from one of our members, which then we kind of all get stuck into the challenge that they've raised, and we all help them out. And then we finish off with a little goal setting um, workshop for the next quarter. And then we finish off and we go on our way. We've also got a resource library and loads of stuff. A uh, private LinkedIn group, which is just rich, full of uh, information, good chats and so on. So if you want to join this growing community, the mastermind community for the safety profession, then go check out www.projectmiletium.com. So let's jump into our conversation today with Christian. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. That's all right, mate. Anyone's welcome here, mate. Anyone's welcome here. Why don't you give us a quick introduction to yourself and then we'll get chatting. So, yeah, um, just quickly, you know, I'm, I'm Christian Wilhelm. I'm, I'm a human factor specialist. Okay. Um, currently working on a nuclear site in far north Scotland called Dunray. Um, worked there, yeah, as, like, as a human factor specialist, um, mainly involved with safety cases, uh, nuclear safety cases, uh, quality, and 
actually many different things also trying to help out a bit of the human performance side um yeah so it's it's often funny when people think oh you're like a nuclear person but actually that's not not where i came from so my my origin origin uh, is more like uh, in aviation okay so i i did a degree in switzerland probably now 10 years ago uh it was a yeah an aviation degree and i got actually introduced there with human factors mm-hmm. uh, back in 2007 that was and uh yeah bought my first book from eric holmichael then yeah so so yeah i've been reading his literature for quite a while um yeah and then i actually worked quite a while in uh in more an operational context like i worked at Zurich airport for almost 10 years Okay. Various roles, so like uh, from aircraft de-icing, so where I coordinate um, everything uh, to weight and balance, coordination of turnaround processes. I even worked uh, briefly in Lost and Found, which was an interesting experience. So it wasn't for me, but it was good to, you know, (laughs) see how things work there. And I would actually say, Mainly, my uh, my background from that is is from from work has done. So I work yeah. in operations, work has yeah. done. But it was really good. I had my um, human factors lens, my human factors view on everything, so I could just um, always relate to my human factors. And we had like things not working well. I could give advice on that, improve human performance, and also I was. I did quite a lot of training. I trained new people, so that helped me a lot to not overload them, but give them the right amount of freedom. And that, that was, I must say, I really enjoyed it. But at some point, yeah, you know, when you do the same things over and over again and there was no change, like, or you couldn't really progress your career. I decided to to uh, do uh, an MSc at Cranfield University. So that mm-hmm. was, yeah, that was... 2014 so I, I did that and I really enjoyed that went a bit deeper into human factors and yeah so and a good friend of mine he sent me a, a, a the job advert for for Dunray and then I thought well yeah maybe yeah, apply there and see what happens so it's a completely different industry yeah and actually when I arrived when I first arrived there it was human factors was quite different to what I had in mind what human factors okay. was so yeah, so it's it's quite um, it's almost a bit of a shock, but it was also I mean it was then more I was more working in the in the realm of work as imagined there, working with safety cases, working with engineers, helping to design plans. So it's like it's always like there we had to guess what human performance will be like mm. at the sharp end. So that that was really kind of good to see as well so like um i guess i learned quite a lot there with, with in my five years working there yeah that was um yeah so and, and apart from that i worked on other um interesting sites um before i actually started my academic sort of before i started my undergrad i worked on a construction site in switzerland building the longest railway tunnel in the world Cool. So that was really good. So I was more there. I was a machinist there. So I was operating heavy vehicles like um, wheel loaders, forklifters, 
all sorts of trucks, diggers, things like that. And that, that I, I enjoyed that. It's like, you know, I was in my early 20s and you're given these big toys to play with. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I really liked that. But, yeah, after a while, you kind of... The novelty I, I, wears off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, before that, I did an apprenticeship as a mechanic. So I, I didn't first... I didn't start as, you know, with... Switzerland, things are a bit different, actually. Quite a number of people, they do apprenticeships. I probably, I would say about 30% go the academic directly straight into university. And the 70%, they do like more apprenticeships. Okay. But you can then go back and yeah, and get your A-levels later. So that's that's what I did. And yeah, still, I, I struggled to leave operations. So that's why I probably stayed after I, I've done my degree. I stayed in in an operational role but it was good experience and helped me a lot to understand people in how they do work and uh, i my my first when when i start on a task it's what i want to do first talk to people who are going to do the task mm. get their get their viewpoint get get their what what they tell you and that's the most value valuable input actually you can get mm. so uh, they can tell you oh, this this will not work and and we struggle with this, but we can actually cope with that sort of thing. So that that really helps a lot. Yeah. Where did you did you say you were based in Scotland? Did I miss that, or you're in Scotland now? Yeah, I'm I'm in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, where Far north. in Scotland? Uh, you know where Thurso is? Where? Thurso. Uh, that doesn't ring a bell. You know the or where the Orkney Isles are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see the Orkney Isles. Oh, nice. That north, yeah. Nice. Nice, my uh, my my family is on the never eat never eat shredded wheat northwest coast, uh, so they can eat see like the Isles of rum and egg and sky and all that lot from their house. Mm-hmm. Lovely, wow. lovely. It's stunning over there, actually. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, the whole place, the whole country is stunning, actually. Really. Oh yeah, it's absolutely beautiful country. I love it. I love it up there. So uh, yeah. yeah, that must have been a shift. That must have been a shift alone just coming to a different country and and a different upper a different industry as well that must have been quite a big shift for you yeah the country wasn't so much of an issue to be honest yeah because i i, I spent quite a lot of holidays in the uk okay normally the west, west country cornwall is quite like it down there as well but culturally it wasn't so much of a shock so i was always i felt quite Always a bit connected to to Britain as a whole, so that was well, definitely good, problem. And also, I mean, working in in the aviation industry, that was very multicultural. So that was like, yeah, that was good. So, and I'm still here. So, uh, <laughs> how long have you been in Scotland now? Uh, five years. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Not planning to go back. So, oh, mate, I'm jealous. I love it. I love it in Scotland. I'd move tomorrow if I could. I don't, I don't think the wife had ever let me. Right, let's get into it then. You, I remember we we connected off the back of your of a blog that you did. Uh, what feels like a lifetime ago now, but I'm just I just got it here on the screen, and it was actually only May 2020. But that just feels yeah. like years ago <laughs> from now. Um, I, I am curious first. Like I think we'll get into this quite deeply, but like. I'd be quite curious if you could kind of define maybe in your own words, 
the the phrase human centered organization like that that's curious i'm curious as to that what what is that why was that your title of the blog and I'll go well, from there it kind of well it's it's almost a bit like a philosophy generally you would generally find in human factors make things human centered make things work for people and it's for me it's just it's 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 the right thing to do if things work for people they normally work yeah and if things don't work for people people normally are able to make workarounds mm. so it and still works for them which is might which might not be the best thing every now and then. not always the best things i guess but yeah it's 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 kind of the philosophy as well that you know i mean you can bring this diversity of people you know you can bring yourself yourself to to the workplace you mm-hmm. don't have to kind of oh i have to adhere to i have to i don't know it's oh they don't want my create creativity for example and they just want me to do a b and c and i do a b and c every day and you know and it's just but i might actually have a better idea and say, hmm, if we do c c a and then b this might be actually much more efficient mm. And I've seen that in my own career working in operational um, uh, areas where, you know, you see actually, oh, actually, that's, that's not really, that doesn't really make sense the way we do it. And you, you try and maybe to say, well, maybe we should do, we should do another way or we should, we should try to do it this way. Or maybe if we do it this way, is it a problem if, if it's something I miss? Mm. But I think generally that's not done so much. It, it wasn't, def- it wasn't done where where I worked uh, to the airport that I mean sometimes yes but it wasn't really like taking the voice of of everybody on board and and make make this process it's not just a process on a paper that that's efficient there that you know that that can be profitable but make it work for people mm. so and I think if if we if we go that way it's it's not a cost. It will be, it will be, there will be a return on investment very, investment. very quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would have said investment. And the, the, the quote that you put in the vlog, which I really like, because it's literally how I've experienced work when I was in operational roles, you know, Frederick Winslow Taylor in the early 1900 described the good worker as someone whose job was to just do just do what he was told and no back talk. That yeah. is literally how I was managed for years, for years and years and years. No matter if I had, whether I thought I had a better idea or, 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 or what, we just did as we were told, like something out of Les Mis or <laughs> like we were going to get whipped if we didn't do what we were told. And, and I just, it just does not... Like I'm, it, to me, it's like it's so blindingly obvious now, but like maybe when you're in it, you don't see it. But like, it's so blindingly obvious now that the way that we kind of force humans to change who they are to mo- like to you know come under standardization. I understand there's there's some benefits to standardization. I get yeah. that, you know, one hundred percent. But you know, it, it's kind of like standardized standardization doesn't work do you know what i mean like standardization across your entire business 
standardization of humans also that, you know, and I see that quite a lot when people talk about knowledge worker and the others. Yeah. So then, so me, that almost applies, oh, people who are not, who like work at the operational front, are they not knowledge workers? So what are they? They're just told to do A, B, C, and D. And I yeah. feel, I mean, that's not right. They also knowledge workers, because they normally have to bridge the gap anyway from... <laughs> Yeah, from done to imagine. So they, they they kind of succeed in spite of your of your standardization, in spite yeah. of the procedure. I used to have a I used to work with a guy who was a sales director, and he said he used to refer to the people on the shop floor in the factory as uh, gimps. Literally right. used to say, or oh, the gimps. Now, if you don't know what gimps is, it's like a kind of sex slave kind of person, which is not very nice at all, uh, unless yeah, you're cool. into that. And um, and 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 I was just, I remember even back then, when you know, none of this stuff was even in my brain. And even back then, I was like, you can't call people that. Like, like you can't call people that. Like, what they're doing a job just because you yeah. you personally deem your job as. I don't know, more intelligent, more important, whatever than what theirs is. It doesn't make them, they probably think their job is more important than your job. Um, yeah. And and it just, and that put for me, put in a nutshell, you know, how people view the workforce. Like if you're in a menial labor, manual labor kind of role, people just assume you're an idiot, don't they? And I yeah. probably say maybe and- I've done it in the past, but you know, it's just, maybe it's it's kind of ingrained in us socially. I'm not sure. I mean, it's disrespectful for the people who are like doing this these oh, tasks. Totally, totally. It's, it's so, and I mean, I'm also a trade union rep, so you know, and I, yeah. so it's I, I I still sometimes feel we you know we, we have moved on a bit, but you know it's sometimes still there, and it's still sometimes somehow in our language we use, and we really I mean just what I like not to use anymore is this knowledge workers thing because. It's yeah. Everybody's a knowledge worker. Everybody applies their knowledge to to do work successfully. Mm-hmm. And maybe just quickly come back to F- F- Frederick Taylor. I mean, I read Taylor. Mm. I read the book. It's it's actually available on Audible, and I actually recommend it. It's it's really good. Yeah. Back then, this might actually have been not the worst approach in a way. And he was quite a progressive person and bringing ideas and making processes better. And actually in human factors, we often consider him one of the first sort of ergonomists. Wow. Um, But yeah, he has a bad reputation, particularly with unions and so on, because of the way um, he he organized work. He did, but he did a lot of great work. And I mean, he solved a lot of the, simple problems in mechanical engineering, for example, when you use a lathe, what's the ideal cutting speed for uh, for, for the tools, things like that. He, he did a lot of great work. What's the ideal shuffle size, for example, mm-hmm. for a particular kind of material? And I mean, back then, you know, where I think work was, wasn't as complex as now, okay, this approach works well. And I would, for me, I say, I, I, I think he was a pioneer, but please don't apply his methods in, 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 in the context of work now because they will not work. And he's a bit of local rationality because like, it was good at its time. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it, not. Yeah. yeah. And I think he would, if he, he if Frederick Taylor lived now, he would be a pioneer now and say, well, we need to do things better. So he was that person. So I get sometimes a bit frustrated when people, you know, drag these, these, um, what, do you, what, 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 what can we call them? These like more historic. Uh, They're kind of like, um, uh, is idols the right word? Maybe not like pioneers. Uh, yeah, these, these pioneers back then, they were, they were doing the best they could, you know, with knowing what they know. Yeah. yeah, I normally just get a problem if you actually know how to do better, but you still re- refer back to the old ideas and take out the whip and just you know drive people down that road and think you know it's it's people's fault and people have to try harder. So yeah, it's it similar to kind of what, as similar to what kind of Carsten Bush talks about with his work with Heinrich, as well. Yeah, you know Heinrich actually did some really good work that was yeah. relative to his time that he was around. Like, which is funny. And I'm, I'm, I was talking to Carsten. I've just spoke to Carsten a few times now. And it kind of opened my eyes quite a lot. And that local rationality thing just really pretty much runs my life now. Like it's like, and it, and it, but it's always been there. And this was the interesting thing when he said it uh, in a presentation before I'd ever, ever spoke to him. And I Googled it, local rationality. I never heard it before. So I Googled it. And then it gave an example on this Google dictionary thing, right? An example that my grandma has said for years, you know, put yourself in their shoes, similar to walk a thousand miles or whatever it is in someone else's shoes. And that was local rationality. But I've been told that my entire life. And I was just mm. like, mm, wow, never really thought of it like that. But yeah, that is it. But I would have been quite easily one of those people a couple of years ago that said, no, 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 the triangle is the triangle is stupid. You know, well, it's not really stupid. It doesn't work for today's time, maybe. And we've yeah. gone further than that. But stupid is, is a strong phrase. Um, but yeah, interesting. Anyway, don't really uh, I it. think it's often just applying this knowledge now is a bit of an issue. Not, you know, that it's. Exactly. And and as well, like the intro, I don't want to get too much into Heinrich, otherwise we'll, we'll let, we could end up talking about Heinrich all day long. Um, mm. But like when, when I was listening to, when I was interviewing Carson and, I, and I, we were talking about the triangle, blah, blah, blah. And he was kind of trying to explain the, the, what Heinrich intended with it. And then the kind of, it's in, in essence, the misuse of that, which to be honest, we could be going down the same path with safety too, with hop, with any of this stuff. We could be doing exactly the same thing now and misusing it, misinterpreting it, which means in for, you know 80 years time, there's another cast and Bush that, that writes a book about how stupid um, everyone says that hop is, but actually that's not what we intended hop to be or, or, or you know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah. And, and, and anyway, I remember he's talking about it and I remember saying to him like, so actually, the, the triangle, we use it as like our entire business. So like there's a triangle for our business, covering our business. So like three, whatever it is, 3,000 minor accidents, 300, 100, and, and, and one fatality. But what we were saying was that doesn't work because of like the cross mix of, like you say, it's complexity, isn't it? Like it's the cross yeah. mixing of loads of different types of hazards. So mm. actually we were saying, well, the triangle would actually make a lot of sense if you applied each triangle to each specific risk and or hazard, whether you want to put the two together. So like, 
you know, fire would have its own triangle, explosions would have its own yeah. triangle, slips and trips would have its own triangle, and so on and so forth. Um, and 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 then they, they, we treat them as indicators, not as literal, like literal numbers and can bean counters in a way. Um, and and I thought that was interesting. I was, I was literally having a conversation the other day. Somebody at work said, "Oh yeah, we took, they showed they showed us this triangle thing and blah blah blah." And I was like, "The triangle is a little bit outdated now, but he, like here's the kind of concept which we should have used it and blah blah blah." And you know, it, it just it's still there. Like it's still there. Like I'm literally having this conversation now. You know, and it's a, there seems to be a big disconnect between maybe the world that you and I are in and we're talking to a lot of these people from an academic space, we're understanding, you know, complexity theory and we're starting to look at human factors and all this stuff. And actually, you know, what work has done in a lot of places is just miles behind this stuff. And they're completely yeah. disconnected from, from our world whatsoever. And you're still talking about, um, do I want to say, I'm just trying to tread lightly here, but like, you know, they're still talking about the triangle, which we've kind of moved on for. We're still, you know, heavily reliant on behavioral based safety, whether you, you know, some would say we've moved past that. Some would say not like whatever, whatever you believe. Um, but they're still kind of working off that maybe Taylorism type of way of working. But actually it's kind of like we need a, like an, academic as imagined and an academic as done because like academic as done is actually nowhere near academic as magic as imagined if you know what i mean uh, absolutely yeah and, and i i always feel myself i'm between two worlds yeah with being like quite a practical person but also i have quite a lot of academic friends and actually considering doing a phd so nice. um i like i like research I like that. I see there is often like an actually exactly that problem sometimes also crops up in when uh, like in, in the, the CIHF, the Ergonomic Society. Yeah. We talk the same things. There's a lot of academic, but then there's also a lot of the practitioner. And actually there is a big gap in between. So like, you know, and that, that that's, as you said, there is like this academic as imagined and academic as done. And, and I mean, to be fair, you know, I mean, most academic work goes into a paper. Mm. And I mean, I read papers, but they're not the most uh, accessible. The hard not the most read, accessible way. Yeah, there, there, there's a few things that, that, that there's problem with it. Most of the time they're stuck behind a paywall, which is which is the first challenge. Um, yeah. the second time it, it's, it's actually like me as a completely non-academic person, like I am so operational minded, like literally was very fine line between me being one of those in quotation, stupid people that just drive a forklift all the time. I'm not saying they're stupid people. I'm using the saying that some people look yeah. like we were referring to our previous conversation. Um, otherwise, you know, my brother, my brother-in-law that drives a forklift every day will be kind of kicking my ass <laughs> um you know I, there's so fine line between that me doing that manual labor kind of job for my entire life and then me coming down this route and now realizing oh actually i'd love to do like msc and phd and all stuff like that and i never never would have intended to do anything like that ever in my entire life and i find it really difficult to read academic papers like most of the time like i would say every third word i have to google 
and find out what it actually means. And sometimes there's there's kind of like a academic language, isn't there? I don't know if you you get it. Like they yeah. sometimes they say stuff, they use words, and I'm like, dude, you could have just said, like, you could have just put that in normal yeah. English. Uh, you yeah. didn't need to write write it like that. And I find that is quite an issue with accessibility of this information. Actually, it defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned is like you have to always pay for it. It's not open source. So it's like, so what good is it anyway? And I find this is really yeah something that annoys me quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I wrote, I co-authored a, a paper recently or almost probably a year ago now that was about human factors for a Mars mission and colonization of Mars. And that was really interesting. So, uh, well, I was happy. I didn't have to deal with the whole peer review interface. So I was a co-author, so it was fairly comfortable doing it. But Mm. yeah, it was like just writing it for, because I have probably a very, I would say rather a simple way of of writing anyway. And the thing for me, I'm dyslexic. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So... I obviously now with do, reading lots of papers, I got used to it much more. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to do it my MSc at Cranfield, where I actually had to read a lot of papers. So that was like, so you can learn it. Oh yeah. But but still, I find, and I mean, even just the font they choose there in in, in their papers is all like Times New Roman, which is the worst font font for uh, dyslexic people. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. But, it makes it really hard to read and it's just like yeah so it's 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 a lot of we need to evolve and it's not human centered as such so yeah yeah no, ironic isn't it <laughs> yeah and and, yeah. and this is i think this is the the problem that we now face is we could end up becoming victim to the same things that that Heinrich's fallen victim too because when you look at the triangle the iceberg the dominoes blah 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 actually what they are is simplifications of a very complex idea so Heinrich's actual work is quite complex quite in-depth uh very technical he puts it into and and Carsten describes this uh, explains this a hell of a lot better than I do but it puts it into these imagery into an imagery to be able to communicate that message simplified version of that message to operational people not because they're stupid but too because they're not really used to this this kind of way of working right way of reading so on and so way of thinking maybe and also in my opinion i don't have time to sit down and read a 50,000 page academic document so he in my opinion he was trying to just make this real quick simple boom there you go there's a triangle that makes sense so the bottom line means that that's an indicator that something's not right and you need to look into it. Right? That's what he's trying to say to you. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. And then we take that, we we kind of throw it out everywhere. We, we standardize it to absolutely everything. And then we go, oh, triangle stupid, triangle stupid. No, it was a simplification. The same thing as Swiss cheese. You know, we've done exactly the same yeah. thing as Swiss cheese. His, his work is, is phenomenal behind the Swiss cheese. But the Swiss cheese, we tear it apart and we go, oh, this is absolute crap. But actually, it's a simplification of his work. So yeah, we were kind of... I still, use, I still use Swiss cheese. More, you know, I mean, what I normally say, apply a multi-method approach and apply many of these visualization not just one because one shows you one thing the other shows you another thing yeah and swiss cheese i think it's still 
it's still a good way to explain things. And I think there are two views you can have on Swiss cheese. Have you ever thought of that? Because I think, you know, like the holes, and I often, and that comes maybe from my operational experience, that you add a lot of safety at the sharp end. So actually you get penetrated with like, you know, the, the layers get penetrated before and you actually almost like trying to play table tennis with like that, like crazy. <laughs> and, and the, you know, and that, that's what I, what it felt to me when I worked in aviation. So like doing ground handling stuff where they were like quite some safety critical issues, mm-hmm. which I highlighted, but nothing was done. So I had, I, I introduced my my own operation that actually I made it safe. And if I think something wrong, Gant actually illustrates quite well as in, in his talks quite often, you know, where, where people make things safer, where people finish the design. Mm. And I had to do that quite a lot. So I had to finish, oh, actually, there is a gap, you know. I can maybe quickly explain it to you if you want. To. Yeah, yeah, crack on, mate. It, it's, um, so Zurich Airport is... It's very busy. It's very, but efficiency is really important for Zurich Airport. So, um, just as an example, you can change your aircraft within 35 minutes and you still have your back. Mm. So, because we do like, we do something like short transport of bags and things like that. And there's quite a lot of bags coming very, very, you know, like almost when the, the flight departs. But when you like work on your load sheet, when you like next the aircraft, you have other things in mind because you can't just, oh, there is another couple of kilos coming. And sometimes you get like 500 kilos more baggage trans, um, arriving at the aircraft in a very short time. But at this time, you're up at the, in the cockpit talking to the cat, to the, to the pilots um, and telling them all about, you know, what, what is, you know, how their aircraft is trimmed. You know, maybe other things, what, what kind of dangerous goods they have on the flight. So now there is a chance that you actually miss these 500 kilos. So they would be loaded onto, onto the aircraft. And well, there you go. I mean, 500 kilograms probably is not so much of an issue for uh, the usual Airbus 320 or so, but still, it's at the end, your aircraft is heavier than your load sheet. Oh. And you have more weight in the back, so potentially you could get a tail strike. Mm. So you could basically, when you when you take off, your aircraft kind of hits the, the the runway, which is not something we would like, and it's really it ruins your day and <laughs> it's no fun. So what I did, I, I was I developed more of a method to estimate a bit, you know, what kind of bags would come because we can always see how many bags in total we had to have. And how many were missing. So I just put these 500 kilos on the load sheet already. Now having a load sheet that is basically, the load sheet is heavier than the aircraft, which is safe. Then you might not have the weight in the back you have on the load sheet. So you, you're, you're more, more nose heavy. So you need to pull the aircraft a bit more to maybe take off. But mm-hmm. that will you will never... Have a tail strike with that, because that because that they they assume that 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 they are they they have yeah. those extra five hundred kilos when actually yeah. they may not. They might not, but sometimes and, they do and sometimes they don't. So in a, yeah. in a way, you've kind of I don't know if I've interpreted this right. You've kind of 
you've just given them the capacity to have that failure happen again. Yeah. Way because you've made you've made it acceptable to have 500 kilos. Then what happens though when they become so? Is this even a thing? Like they become so used to having that 500 kilos that then we go, oh, you know, it's all right because we've got those extra 500 kilos. So just, and then you end up getting an extra 600 as opposed to 500 and then you do the same. Do you know what I mean? Or is that not even a thing or I misinterpreted that? The thing is you could estimate the the weight you're missing. Right. Because it depends on the system that your airport has. But I mean, I can sometimes see 50 bags went through the sorting machine. Yeah, and there are still ten bags missing. So I would say ten bags is fifteen kilos is one hundred and fifty kilos. So I would say there's a good chance these might arrive. They might not. Right. So I would I put them normally on the load sheet because this way the load sheet is actually safe. I'm with you, I think. And when I actually brought up this suggestion, it was like, yeah, maybe I didn't explain it right. Or, you know, it was just like, but we were doing, because we had incidents where there were like discrepancies of tons. Oh, wow. The wrong way. Wow. So there is, you know, there is always that. If, if, you, if your load sheet is heavier than your, your aircraft, your takeoff calculation is actually safe because you didn't actually need that much runway. I'm with you. I'm with you. So, yeah. It's, I think. <laughs> I'm I, I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about aerodynamics and stuff. I'm but, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm definitely not an aerodynamics engineer. I'm, I wouldn't even say I'm an so, aero engineer, let alone but, an aerodynamics engineer. Yeah. But, but basically, if you have more weight... No, I get what you you've need, done, yeah. You've, you need more speed. You yeah. need more runway. Mm. So they're treating the plane like it's heavier when it's actually not there for... Yeah they're always going to have, yeah, that capacity to... to yeah, if yeah. it comes... And, and particularly, I mean, some airports, they don't do that. They are very much, oh, no, if it's like half an hour, we don't even send out the bags anymore. This means you arrive at the airport, wherever you arrive, and you don't have your bags. And, I mean, I used to work for, for a year in the last town. I don't know how annoying this could be and how angry people can get when this happens. So it's a bit like, yeah. It's no, I could tell no, you a lot of stories from, from this world, but uh, yeah, no, probably no might never want to fly anymore. No, no one's happy waiting for luggage. Like it's never a good thing. Like whether you're desperate, you've landed at your holiday or your destination and you are desperate to go to your hotel, waiting for your luggage is just in the way. It's just a very slow yeah. process. It's slow and you, and you are desperate. So you're never going to be in a good mood or you're coming home and you're desperate to go home because you've been flying for eight hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, 24, 48, however many hours. And you just do not want to stand there anymore waiting for your bag to come out. Like it is yeah. never a good thing. Like I'm coming at, I'm, I'm, I am confirming your statement from a passenger point of view. I freaking hate waiting for luggage. I remember coming home from Australia and we were, I mean, if so from England, uh, to to uh, Australia to England is like painful amount of flying, like painful amount. Of I know, yeah. <laughs> it's like two eight-hour flights, I think, and then I might have got this completely wrong. I'm, I can't ever. I'm terrible with numbers. I think it was like two eight-hour flights with a three-hour layover in between. So like you're knackered. You're literally knackered when you get there, and then you have to just stand 
and look at this shitty carousel waiting for your shitty suitcase to come out that's filled with loads of washing needs <laughs> to be done when you get home. And so no, I can totally agree. And when it's not there, you go and queue at the lost and found. Can you imagine? Yeah, you would. Just... Basically, it will be delivered then, but that's that's the only good thing. It, normally, if it's a good airline, you get it delivered home. I'm intrigued to have a chat about uh, you. You, I remember when we were messaging on um, on LinkedIn ages, like I say, what feels like years ago, and you messaged me and you were like, "Have you ever heard of ISO two seven five hundred? If I remember rightly, yeah. which is like yeah. a human centered organization i said if mm. i got that right and I, and I was like nope never heard of it and actually to this day still haven't haven't read it uh, or, or worked from it but i'm intrigued by it like what's your what is it and, and kind of what's your experience with it is it any good i i think it's actually good standard okay. i know one of the co-authors who wrote the standard and it was so he's also from, he's, he's a fellow from the CIHF. And I think it's kind of, I mean, first, the thing is, it's not that easy easy to access. Although you can actually go on the ISO website and what you need to know is, is, is a freely available. So you don't need to buy the standard as such. But you can see, you can see the seven principles. And I mean, I can quickly mention it. It's like principle number one is capitalize on individual differences and organize uh, as, as an organizational strength. So, I mean, that's already like saying, you know, your differences and your different people and bring yourself to work, which I think is it's a good start already. I mean, that's something mm-hmm. I think we need to do in the future. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. um, kind of cognitive diversity, that does, doesn't it? Embrace yeah, that. to me, that's very, you know, that's, it's really, it it, 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 it it connects well with cognitive diversity, actually, and that's another subject I studied quite a bit. Yeah. So I'll just quickly go through the other yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, principles. So the other one is make usability and accessibility strategic business objectives. So that just cries out loud, ergonomics and human factors. Mm. So, and I think applying this and applying this not just for a, you know, a, a small area, rather apply it, you know, strategically over the whole organization. And, you know, that, that would bring so much benefits. And you know, I just think of management systems, for example, information management, are they normal? They're normally not accessible. Normally it's really hard to find what you're looking for and things like that. And that's, that's all waste actually. If I want to speak like in, in a lean Six Sigma way, this is all like going, we lose a lot of, of effort there. Yeah. The other thing is adopt a total system approach. And I mean, that's like, just start thinking about systems anyway. I mean, it's like, rather than, you know, the Newtonian Cartesian way of looking at things, dissecting everything to its smallest bit and then looking at why does this not work right? Because sometimes we might not find that. Sometimes all the components in a system do exactly what we wanted them to do, but then the whole system together isn't working. Yeah. And that's something uh, Nancy Levison explains quite well in her book, uh, Engineering is a Safer World. So that, that's quite an interesting one. Not sure you're familiar with this one. I, I actually haven't read any of Nancy's work, if I'm honest. I've downloaded the paper Safety 3, 
Uh, but other than that, I haven't I haven't read any of her work. Yeah, I mean the, the it's a bit technical, but it's interesting to read, and it has quite some good human factors, maybe more in an engineering language. Okay. So for an engineer, I would quite uh, recommend it. Agreed. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the fourth principle is ensure health and safety and well-being are uh, business priorities. So yeah, I mean that's something I don't normally say too much because I, I consider I don't consider myself as a health and safety person. Mm-hmm. And uh, but yeah, that that of co- of course I mean well-being, mental well-being, all these things, they should really be important, and uh, we need to do more about it. I and, struggle and, with well, I don't know. I bounce when I hear that you know health and safety is a priority. It just makes me cringe. Like even I and not even the first priority thing, which is a, which is a different conversation. Just even as a general priority, like I feel like should 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 you really have to prioritize somebody's health and well being? If but then but then am I being naive? Like. Ugh. This is what I argue with myself around this all the time, like literally on dog walks. I'm just like arguing with myself in that. Is a, like, like, this is why I'm intrigued by this title this phrase, human centered organization. Yeah. If you're a human centered organization, then you are human at the nucleus of your business. Yes. For health, safety, well being is inherently a massive part of that. Because they are that—that's the protection of the human. Therefore, you're, you're treating the human like, in my opinion, uh, kind of like an asset. Like I think, I think actually the root cause of the problem is we see humans as liabilities. Whereas when we flip that and say the humans you employ are your liability, then it's not health, safety, and welfare is not a priority. Your people are a priority would yeah. probably be a better way that I would like to say it. And then I don't know whether I'm just being pedantic or, or what, but. You know, I, I can agree with you. And I think it's, it's still maybe a, f- a fragment of language from the old time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we still have to say these things. It's not just, well, it's just, a, it's just a good thing to do. You know, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. You almost still have to say these things. So, and I think maybe the standard, I mean, it was, it was published in 2010. Maybe, okay, fair enough. It's, you know, we, we, we might, you know, when, it, when it's reviewed in five years time, it, it might change, it might be changed. Um, but yeah, I think some, some of the language is still like uh, from the old. I see it often with, with my dyslexia, just to quickly link that there. Um, it was just like, oh, the dyslexic people, they need help, they need assistance. And and I don't think it shouldn't be looked at as a disability. I just bring a different view. I'm, neuro, I'm neurodiverse. I look, I'm, I'm a, I normally see things in a, I, I normally have a good overview. I see a system. I understand system theory because that, that just resonates with me extremely well because that's something oh, I understand that. I don't always understand the, the nitty-gritty taking things apart and then looking at each bit individually. That doesn't work so well for me. So I'm more like a whole picture kind of person. So um, 
Well, more, it's more imaginative, isn't it? Like if you look at if yeah. you look at the, the people that struggle, because I I'm the same. I, I struggle with numbers. Really struggle with numbers. I'm terrible with dates and things. Like I could not tell you my mum's birthday, other than the fact I know it's near when the fireworks start going off. Um, <laughs> like that. That's I'm terrible with stuff like that. Um, and and it's taken me many many years to be able to write a message or an email that actually makes sense um you know to be able to read as many as many books as i read now it's taken me years so i was tested for dyslexia when i was a kid and surprisingly um i i don't i don't have it apparently um but well i'm telling you now i have something because <laughs> i'm terrible at that stuff um and and if you look yeah, at I mean, if you look at some of the, the people that have that have that had dyslexia i remember I might have got this wrong. Richard Branson, I think, has got dyslexia. Uh, Einstein had dyslexia. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really good yeah. problem solvers. They're really good at thinking outside the box, yeah. looking at the whole picture, like you've just yeah. said. They're much more imaginative. So actually, for me, it, like you, you hit the nail on the head earlier. You hit the absolute nail on the head earlier in that it's just a different view. Does it make me any less of a person it's than a, you? Because I'm terrible at grammar and spelling. No, and it actually can bring it. You think twenty percent, and just to 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 mention your experience, I had to go to a psychologist, like a learning psychologist, and they didn't pick it up. Oh, really? But I can tell you now because I know quite a bit about cognitive psychology of being a human factor specialist. I don't have an official paper telling me I can test out what I do. Just you know, transposing something that's written down to let's say. You went. You want to write something, uh, rewrite something that's on an i on, on a Mac or a laptop, on your iPad, and it's not open anymore. I lose it. I can't store this information. Mm. I can't store like a long sentence. Mm. I might the way I need to do it. I need to create meaning in my head, and normally that's a visual picture. And then I try to recreate that in writing but the writing will be completely different yeah. and i can tell you i tried the nibosh diploma right so you have to bring out things word by word yeah i'm the same i I have a chance i can't do that yeah i i am literally exactly the same as you if it's a story it yeah. sits in my head it's like like if if People that are good storytellers, and I know everyone talks about storytellers and blah, 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 whatever, but like I struggle with books like I'm reading um, Eric, one of Eric's books now. And if a lot of it is very, you know, Eric is Eric and he he's writing to a, a specific audience and there's not a criticism of his work. Mm. He writes in a manner which really doesn't stick with me. Like I literally will have to write something down and refer back to it at a later date or, or note it or whatever and refer back to it when I'm at work and do it. And then once I've done it, it sticks there because I can remember I've got a reference. So I did it that day. But if somebody tells me a story, like I've just read um, Our Iceberg is Melting, which is a fable around change management. And that really stuck in my yeah. head because it's around the stories. I can remember the characters. I remember the visualization, the pictures, the iceberg, yeah. the penguins. And I'm just like, this works for me. I get it. Oh, this is like the iceberg thing. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Um, I'm exactly the same as you, mate. Exactly the same. To be fair, you sound to me like you, you might, you know, yeah. I mean, it's always, you know, these tests, they're not like, they're not a hundred percent, you know, 
I mean, I was able to cope at doing like doing um, an undergrad degree with, I mean, it was, it was a huge hassle. And every time I was in training, I was like doing my load control training. I was a nightmare. But then at the end of the training, I knew everything. Yeah. I normally end up knowing everything because I, I, sit, I, I store for understanding. Mm. You can never de-understand. You can de-learn. You can, you can, what you learn, you can forget. Yeah. But what you understand, try, try to de-understand. You can't. So for me, whatever I learned, I accumulate. So I'm quite a sponge. Mm. But to me, it takes a long time to learn. And that frustrates people, particularly people who give the training because like they sometimes go, oh, is he, is he asleep? No, it's just, I knew at the end, and when I was like doing my, my, my job at the airport, I, I, I was really good because I could see, I could feel the system working. I was always ahead of the task. You know, I, I, there was nothing that could really stress me at work, but I had to get there. And to get there was a lot more struggle than being not dyslexic. But mm-hmm. once you're there, you really, you know, and that's what I think we're, we don't really pay that much attention to dyslexic people because they might, you know, the learning curve is just different. Well, it's, but at it's, some point, go on. But at some point, they might be well ahead. Yeah. And our society is yet not there to really appreciate these differences. Well, it's it's standardization again, isn't it? We have a standard human and dyslexia or dyscalculus or, or any disability really does not fit the standardized uh the standardized criteria for a human. Therefore, um we we deem it as lesser. Yeah. I that, mean that, school. Yeah. School, for example. School when I went to school, yeah. I had like we had something called dictation. Yeah. So that happened every second week. So, and my parents just try harder, try harder. And uh, I mean, you know, I could write one word correctly in the first paragraph and then completely wrong in the second. It was just like that. And then the whole stress, of course, because you go into a negative spiral with the whole thing Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to recover. And when I went to school and I mean, I'm I'm turning 40 this year, so it's been a while (laughs) and Everything was German, obviously, because I come from German part of Switzerland, German-speaking part of Switzerland. And it was really, you know, everything was based on language. And I, I must say my dyslexia is worse with German. It's not too bad with English. Mm. Well, but there is also the difference. Yeah. Okay. But we drifted off into something else again. So, uh, But it, it all connects to the human-centered idea. You know, it was like... Can we bring ourselves to work? And I mean, we're still not where maybe some organizations are where they all say, oh, we have neurodiverse people and we, we, you know, this is our asset. This is, this keeps our company alive. Mm. That's why I think that um, Amy Edmondson's work in psychological safety is, for me, is one of the biggest things we've needed for a long time like i'm not saying you know obviously that that stuff was there and it's you know it's just a natural evolution every time but how popularized it's become for me is 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 game-changing because it's 
we can do all this stuff and say, yes, you know, we, we have accessibility, we, we, we have diversity and so on. Um, but cognitive diversity does not come unless you have, in my opinion, psychological safety, because there's, there's, you'll have diverse people, that's yeah. fine. And, and Reb, in the book Rebel Ideas, he, there's this really good picture um, where he does it and he's got like bubbles and you have like a good psychologically safe team. He, he doesn't call it that, but he calls it like a, a cognitive diverse team. You mm. have that. I think that's what he calls it anyway. And it's like loads and loads of circles, you know, all overlapping yeah. box, like, you know, like a, like a ball pit essentially of loads. And each one of those is a different way of thinking. And actually what ends up happening is we just, mold into that one big bubble so then that it just becomes one big bubble yeah right because we we mold people into our way of thinking which is what we do through procedures and policies and standardization and so on so that's what i, I don't know what you think but i think amy Evanson's work around psychological yeah. safety is a game changer her book is absolutely fantastic and um and I'm, it's really good for me i normally listen to books so i have an audible subscription that's how i get a lot more information in and I mean I think it's really as you say it's one of the most important elements and I would also predict something here I would say most organizations have quite a cognitive diversity already there mm. but nobody really in the organization knows about it. and it, it goes back to you know when they, they recruit people they always look at the skills immediately needed but what else is under the bonnet you know, the CV goes in the drawer, never to be seen again. And I mean, we're all different. I mean, some people are introvert. They, they don't really like to, you know, come and, and, and step up and say, well, hang on, this is wrong. And I mean, I would consider myself introvert as well. I'm I'm more like a quiet person. And I, I often am not always comfortable to contribute, even like with, with web things and that, you know, like, for example, Teresa's uh, webinar, I sometimes say something, but I'm not like a person who is like yeah. feeding in information all the time. I'm a bit like almost reserved, but yeah, it comes probably from being an introvert as well. So, and, you know, introverted people have a lot of good things to say, but they very quickly feel like, oh, I think this group is really not, not for me. the place I want to contribute because, you know, they might just hang me if I say something maybe a bit controversial. I don't know. Thing like that. And and what horrible world to be in where just because of your personality, which there are so many people that are introverts, and it's kind of like you can't be a manager or leader in a business unless you're extroverted. Like, and that, that, that's kind of how it works. And in a way, this is, I think this is what sits really uncomfortable with a lot of people in this new, uh, is, it, is it even new, but like this better way of working in a more human centered approach, you know, it's kind of like embracing chaos a little bit, like embracing so many different opinions and different ways of working. Like, you know, if you're going to put it in its really simplest terms, like, not having a procedure for how to run a machine, but having a, you know, an end 
an end uh, goal. You know, we need to produce this product for this standard of quality um, because that's what we need to do as a company. The machine works like, so then engineering set parameters in, in the machine, you know, it, the machine physically can do this and it, but it physically cannot do that. So here is your parameters. Um, off you go, go and yeah. make me a product, please. You know, this machine, like the back of your hand, you've worked here for 20 years, but Bob runs it like this and Steve runs it like that. And that's a good thing. But to a manager, even to me, you know, to, when, when I started in, in this career, that would have been chaos. Like would it, in my head, I'm like, this is just chaotic. It's scary. I think for a lot of managers but and leaders. But, but I mean, just to, you know, this example, it's really good. And, and when you look at the, the maker communities, I mean, mm. I have a 3D printer, I have quite a lot of tools and, you know, I, I buy tools that are versatile, yeah. that can do many different things. So, I, but I need to know how to, to operate them and I need to do it safely, but they can do many different things for me. And it's, it's, it allows me to be creative, to make whatever I can, you know, there's almost no limit with all the different tools and combining them as well. And I think that's, yeah, that's something we don't want people in a way, you know, we almost like strip them off their creativity and just like, you know, operate the machine the way you want. Yeah. Because Bob has a better way than, 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 than Charles, for example, or, you know, it's just, it's, it's that it's, and because it kind of happens anyway, like maybe not in all, maybe not in all industries, but like when I've worked in manufacturing and I've worked in construction, um, you know, more kind of trade based domestic kind of construction work. But like when you look at when I think back to like even when I was at college and working with electricians, training to be an electrician, like you work with one electrician one day. And then a different electrician the other day and they would do something completely different and mm. you would just pick one that worked for you and go yeah the difference was is that the way that you described the person that did it different would you would say they they did it the wrong way but actually it's not they just did it their way yes is the end result what we wanted did did, did the lights all turn on the sockets work in the house Yes, did you know there was no electric, you know, serious electric shocks, and no one's hurt themselves. Blah blah blah. Well, that's successful, is it not? And then that's yeah. what we're after. Um, and the same when I worked in manufacturing, you know, like I, I do, I specifically remember these two um, shift leaders, and they would run the shift very differently, very very differently. But both were successful shifts. Both were mm -hmm. successful um, team leaders. Yeah, I see this variation. I mean, this variation, I think, even is necessary anyway. Because there's mm -hmm. no standard human. Exactly. There is no standard human. So, like, <laughs> we, we are, it's quite, a, you know, it's neurodiversity. It's different heights, different strengths, you know. It's just, and that brings us back to the human-centered approach, actually. It's, it, there is no standardized human, so we need to make it work for everybody mm. maybe a quickly a finish with uh, the the three principles just to have hey, them sorry in. i thought you'd finished them I'm, i've massively interrupted you there sorry carry on <laughs> no i mean it's a chat so it's not... <laughs> so the, the 
the third last is value personnel and create meaningful work. And that goes also back to cognitive diversity and links a bit to the first. And I mean, like meaningful work is really important. I love that. I mean, it has to be meaningful. And if, if it's meaningful, you can own it. And I mean, you're proud of your output. So yeah. for a company to have meaningful work, I think everything else is almost a waste. Everything else is almost like, it's a wheel that doesn't need this. Like it's a wheel that doesn't doesn't do anything. It's just yeah. I love that phrase, that. Me- meaningful work. I think that's a beautiful phrase. Like, and and I and I think a lot of the problem with you, when you mention pride of work, for, for me, we have this conversation around accountability all the time and safety. We need to you know we want to make people accountable for safety. We want to make people accountable for their work. And when you talk about accountability, it's just I want to blame somebody. Um, but actually, how I look at accountability is is just priding our in in, in our work. And, yeah. and we can create a space in which the work is meaningful to them. Therefore, they take pride in their work. Therefore, they choose their own accountability. They take it on themselves. You don't force accountability on someone. You create a space in which they become proud to do the work, proud to work for you or your brand or your company or whatever it is. And that's accountability. I love that phrase, meaningful work. I love that. And I think it's always like, you know, it's if, if I always feel accountable for, you know, it's like, but with some work, it can be right, quite difficult. And I see that often in, in certain work in nuclear as well, where you just finish a report or something and then, well, this is done. And actually there is nothing that, you know, oh, it's a regulatory requirement. And I think it's, it's really kind of just to do something for regulatory requirements is, you know, it's almost like the feedback loop is missing. So, like, nobody really thanks you for that. It's just like, oh, we had to do it. And I don't think it's it's always healthy for people to just do that work and, you know, do 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 the work that's more meaningful to them as well. And I, th- I would also think with where we are, with, you know, just generally the world with, with certain jobs are probably really not good for mental health Mm. and i guess these are the jobs where you know people fail to see the meaning of their work as well i think that might link together so Mm. just links to the previous uh, principle but just going quickly and the last two are quite um the second last principles be open and trustworthy Mm. i mean I always think, you know, for a leader, trust is almost, it's the most important thing. I mean, and I seen that when I did my military service in Switzerland. If I couldn't trust the captain or so, it it wasn't working. And I had had this experience when I uh, became a corporal and then later a sergeant. I, you know, I didn't really trust that captain, but I really had a good captain when I had to recruit, when I was a recruit. So, uh, so that, that was really different. And, and this trust, when it's not there, leadership without trust doesn't work. Mm. And I've seen people with, who, who, who lead without trust, they don't normally lead with their institutional power because mm. they were the appointed manager and they have the managerial powers. But just looking at teams like that, they're often dysfunctional and sad and 
a lot of turnovers and, you know, many other things, I guess, as well. And probably psychological safety isn't, isn't existent yeah. in an environment like that. And, and, and as well, I think we have, in our, we have been ingrained to manage in that way of utilising our title, pulling rank um, and, and kind of I am the manager, you are my subordinate, you must do as I tell you to do. I think what people really don't understand is that actually if you just build a relationship with a person that that's not con, con, command and control that's kind of you know it, it engaged a, an engaging relationship between the two a meaningful relationship that's a two-way kind of street you still have the legitimate kind of hierarchical power to be able to pull rank if you want to use that phrase in quotation when needed but what you get is that trust and respect and that relationship and actually people work harder they work harder for you and yes. i've seen it i've I'm, used to be a chef i have seen kitchens that is a very tight-knit team it's extremely tight like you've got and it's like a well-oiled machine when it works but it does not take much to flip that switch for it to be like an old rusty clamped out machine that doesn't work. And one mm. of the main things is the head chef. Chefs are traditionally run off a fear-based system in that chefs are stereotypically, and it is true, angry people that throw knives across the rooms. Yes, it actually happens. And and just swear at you and shout at you. You've only got to read Gordon Ramsay's book, you know, to 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 understand that. Um, and that stuff actually happens. But I remember when I was running a kitchen and we were just good mates, all of us. I was still yeah. the team leader in that kitchen. So when a decision needed to be made and no one was no one was sure, they just said, James, what do you think? And I said, I think this, but what do you guys think? And if yeah. one of the chefs would say, I, I think that maybe we should do this. And we go, okay, cool, do that then. You, know, you still have that that hierarchical system of power. Yeah. But when it comes down to the fact that we need to slog it, I need them to work hard for me. They do it. I don't have to ask for it. They just do it. We just yeah. come together as a team. We just get the job done because we need to get it done. And we have a relationship which they know that I'll look after them as soon as I get an opportunity to. But right now, we're all in the shit. The restaurant's packed. The ticket machine is going nuts and we just need to get it done. Um, and I think people have this opinion that they think people will work better and harder if I just beat it in them. Whereas actually, yeah. if you just build a relationship built on trust and respect, then they'll work better for you anyway. I've gone out of focus. Uh, absolutely. absolutely, yeah. So that's that's my experience being like a sergeant in the military, but I, like, I had this approach, which was actually not... The, this, this, the, this, the senior um, officers didn't really approve of the way I did it, but I was in charge of, of transport and all the lorries and stuff, and it worked like a clockwork. Yeah. Without me ever shouting or ever, you know, it just worked. And I remember just a little anecdotal kind of story. I remember when I was, was, was working at this pub, and um, so basically we had um, like a head chef, um, and then and then when when that head chef left, unfortunately, basically the whole pub got like torn apart. You know, it was a terrible pub. Um, it got torn apart. The chef was fired. The pub, the pub, the guy that owned the pub, 
it was like a franchise, so the guy that run the pub, he was fired and so on and so forth. There was loads of problems. And uh, long story short, we went through this massive period of kind of like turmoil. And I was, that was a period I was kind of made like holding team leader. And we, and this ended up going on for ages and ages and ages and ages. And, and then we ended up having just such a good team. And it was uh, whenever it was, but everyone in our team had, she had like sections of the kitchen. You had like pot wash, desserts, like starters and, and sides and, and, and then meats and all that stuff. Right. And then you had what normally is the nucleus, what normally is the head chef, the person that plates up. So mm-hmm. gets all the food, shouts out the orders, gets all the food and plates it up onto a dish, right? Then normally the team leader or the, the head chef or whatever your setup is in the kitchen, they're normally quite extroverted. They're normally quite loud. Um, and, and, and I inherently fell quite nicely into that position as a very mouthy young man um, that, that, um, that was very extroverted. So fell quite into that. And we ended up having a really well-oiled machine like i said earlier and um everybody in this in this team could do every other part of the kitchen that was like a fundamental thing we needed to happen because we would go on split shifts when it's quiet so people would have like a three four hour break and you needed one person to be able to do the entire kitchen and some extra jobs so it was a very it was a very important part of what we did to be able to understand everything and it's a good example here of of a a leader kind of coming in and and not listening to their staff long story short we we got a new head chef in she kind of came in and and it was like saturday and she came into the 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 kitchen and she was like right here's the plan for tonight now i always plated up um and it worked really well and she was the new head chef so she wanted to plate up and that's okay whatever that's your prerogative you want to do that um and uh long story short we had this conversation outside you know doing what chefs always do sit outside and smoke and we were all sitting outside and smoking and she came in and she was like this is the setup blah 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 and and i didn't really say anything i get it she's a new head chef she wants to play up blah 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 but the other lads were like i'm really not sure this is a good idea like this is your first shift we're, we're forecasted to be really busy tonight and um and it's probably a good idea for us to stick to how it normally works and then tweak it on other periods. You know, they said that I didn't say anything. So I was like, cool, that's fine. They put me on pot wash. So I was like, that's cool. I'll be demoted to pot wash. I had a little bit of a paddy because I was a bit young back then. And uh, and I just nailed pot wash all night. It was a great, great night. It was easy peasy. We're only getting really busy and it got went to shit because this whole machine had just broken down because it was well oiled and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So when I look back onto this, I'm like, yes, I'm not saying she couldn't have come in and, and put her new way of working on. Yes, that's her prerogative to do as a new head chef, but she should have listened to her staff. She should have listened to what they were saying to her. And we we were right next to her cinema. And, and basically whatever we used to watch, keep an eye on what films were coming out. It was a popular film. We knew we were going to go busy. We knew we were going to be busy. We were right next to the cinema. And it was like Harry Potter or something like that. And we were like, Look, I'm telling you now, we're going to be absolutely booming. 
And because we were next to a cinema, we were very different. Like our stock levels were different. Our stock levels were based on the films, not based on normal times. We were very much out of the way. So normal things like Mother's Day were quite quiet for us unless there was a big film on. So it was very strange, but they just didn't get it. They come in, standardization. This is how the chain of pubs operates our stock counting. This is how we operate running a kitchen. It all went to shit on the first night. And the, the lady running the whole pub, she came in and she was like, what the hell is going on? I have customers complaining and complaining and complaining and put it all back to the way it was. I'm not saying this story to make it sound like I'm the hero. I'm not like put me back on the plate up. And we just, we just smashed it out. We got it sorted. Yeah. Like I said, I was very young. I was very arrogant. So I probably did walk around like a bit of an, a cocky asshole for the rest of the night. Um, but when I look back on it now, I think that I didn't say anything because I was technically being kind of demoted. So it wasn't really my place to then say anything. I, well, I did. I swore and moaned. But other than that, the others kind of said, actually, I don't think it's a good idea tonight because of their knowledge of, of the team and of the kitchen and of that pub. You know, one, one of the guys who was the kind of, he just run the, run the grills all night. He had worked there for donkey's years. We mm. all looked to him that even the, the people that managed the entire pub looked to him to kind of forecast what was going on. He was kind of like the Oracle, like talk to him because he knows what he's talking about. He knows this pub inside out. Fucking hell. I mean, he still works there now. You know, and like 15 years on and, and, and I'm just like, when I look back on this lady now, like she come in in that old school way of managing, managing, I know what I know better because I've done this in another pub. Yeah. This is a completely different pub. Didn't listen to her star and just went off you go. And it all went to shit. You know, yeah. I've, I've seen it happen. I've seen managers come in and do that con- command and control. And it all goes to shit. That's not the better way to work. Listen yeah. to your team because they know what they're talking about. I think that's the most important thing. And I guess, you know, it's also if, just the whole dynamic goes into the bin anyway. It's all like, it's just wasted if, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got a couple of examples like this as well. So it's just, <laughs> not going to mention them. But it's, yeah, it's very similar to yours. It's just like, I felt like that in the military. It was like, mm, I can it, imagine. it really was, uh, I had captain there when I was a recruit. He was, he was firm. He was quite, but he was fair, yeah. and he was really. I mean, he was. He was. He could be trusted if he said that. Yeah, this is what we're going to do, and treat the people with respect. He never really shouted or you know, wasn't loud or anything. But yeah, you, you could just. You could just. And what actually what I learned from him. Him was like. Um, we, we the Swiss Army have like two sort of like one says which troops you were in. Like, so it was the rescue, um, search, uh, sort of search and rescue troops. Right, yeah, yeah. And the other side was the rank. So I said, I'll leave with my personality and with, with, with my competence. I don't want to leave with my rank. Nice. You got one yeah. more principle left, is that right? Yeah, the, the last principle is acting socially socially responsible way or act in social socially responsible ways, maybe... Um, as it says, so it's it's linked to ISO twenty six thousand, and it's more a guidance. It's not really a standard. Probably aims more like large um, uh, companies, you know, and and how you treat your environment and everything, and you know, just 
generally like like as an as an idea well, I, like, corporate, corporate social responsibility kind of like yeah that. it links to that but i haven't really seen much of it you know or many organizations saying well this is what we do this is what we apply so it's it's also a bit like um yeah it's it's probably not that well understood there's there's some linkedin groups about social responsibility but i mean this all links in a way of course to human centered organization like then the more what you do in your organization and i think it's what what i what i felt when i read the standard it's it's very close to the safety two philosophy okay you know like people are a solution not the problem yeah, yeah. that's basically the the underlying thing i read from that and for me it's also i think it was maybe the hope to make human factors a bit more what's the word you know bring it a bit more into the spotlight and yeah yeah limelight yeah but i think human factors could do a lot of good you know if it but sometimes we feel it would be like just all you do like safety case or you do like engineering and we don't really see the the, the strategic um um benefit it could bring and i don't i, I must say I, I don't know many people in higher positions with maybe a background like that so maybe that's what it takes i don't know i think it's interesting because it's interesting you, you kind of allude into something that's been ticking away in my brain uh Teresa swindon I, I talk to her quite a lot and she i know she is part of like i don't know what it what it is but like she coaches like um she runs like a human human factors kind of human organizational performance lecture as part of the an msc in in occupational health and safety uh, for a university and it's like oh hang on a minute like when i heard that i'm like hang on a minute whoa 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 slow down there's a human or an organizational performance slash human factors section in the masters for occupational health and safety because nebosh and ncrq and any of the others which is the most common traditional route into safety don't even touch on it mm. do not even mention it so why have we acknowledged in in you know even if it's just once one unit which is not good enough in my opinion but it's better than what we've currently got in a nebosh like we've acknowledged it in the masters route in the msc route we have not acknowledged that we need that until the point where i was even talking to to a, a, a somebody who works for an ncrq because i commented on one of their posts they were saying our oh, new course is coming and i was like if the new course is not around human and organizational performance, human factors, culture, whatever you want to call it, understanding how people work. If you know, if it's not around some things like systems thinking and complexity theory and stuff like that, which is actually what we need, then you've wasted your time and you have wasted your another qualification for someone else. But I'm sure it will just be here's NCR's construction and fire certificates, which is just a copy and paste of Nibosh. And it's so disappointing. But it's nice that, like you're saying, it's coming into the limelight because universities are picking this up. And if they're yeah. picking this up, everywhere else will hopefully follow. My camera's gone think, dead, but I am still here. I think it still needs more work and we still need to push it. And I mean, I think human, human factors has become quite a bit a part of, well, I mean, when you look at Sidney Decker's work, Eric Hall-Nagel's work, mm. It's quite, uh, 
you know, that's that that's um that's human factors induced sort of safety. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, well received everywhere, as you might know. <laughs> yeah, that's so an that, under, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. So that that you know, that view, and I mean Sidney Decker is like his book uh, Drifting to Failure, where he talks about um complexity quite a yeah. bit. Yeah. And actually that led me to start studying complexity theory quite a bit in depth. And you know, just I think I have quite a good understanding now of that and i think we need to really more doing that and i mean complexity theory as well needs to go more into human factors courses syllabus yeah you know these things as well system theory i mean complex system theory all these things need, need to be in there because the world tomorrow is just a tiny wee bit more complex than it was today yeah. and we go on and more, yeah. and I mean, just with that, we will also lose more more work that's more cognitive um, routine. Yeah, cognitive routine work will more and more be replaced by more sophisticated AI. So, yeah. and we will be more like you know really use the human but they're good they're creative you know there are things that that are i would say probably impossible to copy with ai mm. i heard I something really scary the other day when just curious that you because you mentioned ai and this it was it really worried me if i wanted so we'll actually go down this route i can't remember for the life of me what podcast or story or whatever it was on but this, this guy basically said, most people think that AI is going to re- replace the manual worker, but actually it's more likely to replace the manager because an AI can much quicker and much more efficient, in his word, I don't think it is efficient, come up with a calculation and a job work order to say, have you done this? Yes, I've done this. Right, now do this. And, and order yeah. the human, which for me is really scary because, you know, we as humans are really like this whole conversation we're having is essentially rooted in the fact that we still struggle to understand the complexities of humans and, and embrace diverse thinking and diverse people. And that's really complex. I can't mm-hmm. imagine AI is doing a better job. Um, so when, when I heard that, I was just like, oh my God, that's scary. And I think we move, you know, with AI, I think what I criticize with AI is like, you know, the approach is very much top down. So you're trying to design something, a consciousness, but consciousness is an emergent thing. You know, it emerges. And actually, you know, when you talk to a neuroscientist, we don't really understand it that well. Yeah. We're far away from, repro- and I mean, how do we want to reconstruct reproduce something we don't even understand that's quite a bit arrogant in a way and i find sometimes you know with i mean we're not algorithms humans are not algorithms and also we have many different layers we i mean we have the thinking layer but then we have the emotional layer as well and that plays a big role that's not just there for oh it's a nice bit to have computer doesn't need that it's just in a way that's really that's important it's important how we, you know, improbably in a way that we would couldn't even explain because it emerges out of what we are at the end. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are things we're not good at. 
we're not good at staring at a gauge for an hour and wait for it to go from 0.1 millibar to another millibar. I mean, we fall asleep. Mm. That's not a good task for us. Let's give that to a computer. They do much better job. They yeah. don't get bored. Yeah. But for us, I mean, what would you do that? We're, we're really, I mean, I often hear people, oh, I'm really not a creative person. I think that's not, every person has a creativity in a way, you know, like just maybe not, you might not be an artist and do and, and create paintings, Yeah. but every person has a creativity. And I think that's with more introduction of AI is what we probably, it's, it's going to be a knowledge economy where knowledge is actually the main good, not 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 like uh, something a machine produced. So knowledge might be really the thing that's most important for us. Yeah, never and that means cognitive diversity. Mm. Because without cognitive diversity, we're not able to predict the future. No. And I, I'm not sure you're familiar with Scott Page's books. No. no. He, he wrote uh, the... He wrote quite a number on... on um, cognitive diversity he's a mathematician okay and he actually um he came up with the the diversity prediction theorem and mathematically you can actually say you know a more diverse group in a complex environment makes much better predictions so that's actually it's a mathematical fact i vaguely remember this actually i wonder whether matthew touches on it in his book um, he he's good friends, I think, with Scott Page. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember this. That that I think he talks about it from a stocks and shares point of view, and he says um, like, you know, math, math. There, is, there is something called um, uh, there's an online platform. Just I just forget the name. Uh, that where it's 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 basically um, a prediction market. It's called a prediction market. Right. And I've been on there and, you know, like provided my input. And it was really interesting. It, it pretty much predicted Joe Biden's win. Yeah. Where other models failed miserably. Yeah. That were just applying the old ideas from before Trump messed everything, messed everything up. <laughs> you know, where... Republicans voted for Republicans. Now Republicans might not vote for Republicans anymore, so they might just do something else. Yeah. It made it all complex. People do different things. Your old models, your old ideas, you can just throw them in the bin. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's, and it's like that thing you said about you know we, we there's layers to humans, isn't there? There's our kind of our knowledge, our experience, and but we're, we're like we're we're emotive, like we're so emotive. And, and yeah. that can dramatically change how we are like, and this is like, like, I think another benefit to building relationships with your employees is to be able to pick up on those subtle, um, those subtle indicators of someone's emotive state, because you know them well enough. Like, you know, like if you're like me and my wife, for example, have known each other for, you know, we've been together for like 10, 10 years, probably more than 10 years now, but like, you know, we can pick up on the slightest indicators that one of us are not in a good mood, like tone of voice, you know, body language, very subtle things. It, it's, it's so subtle. Yeah. You, you don't, I mean, it's almost like nothing, but it's just like, 
it strikes you. No one else will be able to pick it up. No, but yeah, I can yeah. tell 100%. I'm like, she is not comfortable with this conversation. And if we can do that, you know, bear in mind, some people work at the same place for 10, 20 years, you know. So it is possible to build that type of relationship, yeah. you know, that's that intimate with an employee if you're there long enough with them as well. And people are like, oh, you know, it's not, I'm not going to be their wife or their husband, but, but, but it's not, no, it's not. It's like, get yourself out of these kind of stereotypes like, and think about the benefits that would bring. That if Steve turns up and you can pick up on that subtle indicator that his tone of voice indicates to you he's not in a very good mood, you can highlight that and potentially stop any mistakes whether it be health and safety, quality, production, whatever it is, you can pick up on that. Are you all right, mate? Well, you know, I've just had an argument with a wife on the way. She really pissed me off. All right, let's take 10 minutes to calm that, whatever. But you just yeah. pick that up instead of normally, it might have gone on the machine, jumped on the forklift, you know, jumped, gone up the scaffold, whatever, in, in a state in which he is not thinking straight or, 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 or kind of, you know, in his cognitive norm, so to speak. Mm-hmm. To be able to pick up on stuff like that as an employer, I think it's just uh, like unbelievably va- valuable. And I think that will never be replaced. You know, this will. Yeah. It's there is there is so much more to humans. We're so we're complex, we're, and scientists don't understand what we are fully. I mean, it's it's not that we can really say, oh, we can just reproduce ourselves, or we write a couple of algorithms and oh, look, there's a human. It doesn't, I don't think this will be, you know, and and also, go on. Also machines, they don't, they don't understand. Mm. They have just a a huge amount of data with a lot of boxes and they see, oh, this is that box, this is that box, you know, but they don't really understand. There's a a German neuroscientist, um, Henrik uh, Beck, I think his name is. And he really says, you know, people have the ability to understand things. We can never, never de-understand something, you know. It's just, and I might send you a, a TED talk maybe later to have a look. It's, it's yeah. really interesting what he says, and I think, and that's that's really that important bit. And we need to utilize this much more, and you know, in organizations. And organizations will need to do that because otherwise. You know, in a complex world, world they might not, they might not survive. You, we need to, we need to find a better, better, more sustainable way to utilize the human resource. Mm. And I think I like that's that. what the human-centered organization is about. And I mean, cognitive diversity, psychological safety, all goes very well in there. And I hope it will become vocabulary in the next um, revision. When they when they review the standard and you know I hope this will be in there. Hopefully, it might have some influence, but uh, we will see. Yeah. yeah, it's um, mate, I could talk about this all day, but it's fascinating, and I just think it's exciting. It's I don't know what you're, what you're kind of like. I try and communicate to people like, well, I think a lot of people get really frustrated when they get access or insight into this new kind of complex socio-technical you know human factors way of thinking about work slash safety whatever quality whatever you're doing and they're like oh my god yeah this is amazing it's life-changing but like and i think a lot of people get stressed out or or, um or really frustrated because 
as we said earlier, that kind of academia imagined to academia is done gap uh, is very large or, you know, that work in reality, you know, doesn't cover this stuff yet. Um, and I try and flip it to be like, it's such an exciting time to be in work because we are now going through this journey at an exponential rate. Like I've been in safety for 10 years and we were not having this conversation at my level. Like this wasn't, this was unknown to me and I'm not the kind of person that, that is in this space. Like I had never had an an attraction to academia. I'd never had an attraction to anything like this. So the fact that I've picked that up, I think, and then gone, wow, this is freaking amazing. That is an indicator that we are doing the right thing. And yeah. and I think the the mass exponential growth of podcasts, of people talking about this on social media, writing blogs, making videos, you know, what whatever you're doing, do more. Because yeah. we need to get this message out there. Do not get frustrated, but communicate it out to the world and tell more people. And I would also like express my thanks to you, like doing these podcasts, which are really, really good. And I mean, helping people like me who are a bit introvert and, you know, it's like, it's, I can write, I can write an article about something, but it normally takes me a long time because, well, dyslexia, thing like that. And, you know, I'm trying to, I would probably rather draw you a picture of what I want to do rather than writing something, but it's, It's 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 some sometimes you know um, to talk about it. I think it's the best the best thing we can do, and to keep the conversation going. And I think there it's maybe something I also alert or you know Steve Sharrock mentioned it um, a while ago. I mean I think he's a bit in a way he also had to act start acting more ex- extrovert. So I, I can learn to do that, but still. I'm normally out of my comfort zone. So I'm always a bit like, you know, I think I, I can say a couple of good things, hopefully, but you know, it's it's like always, yeah, it's 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 not my natural environment. It's like mm. it's even or give a give a talk to 15 people. I'm normally quite okay with that, but more than that could be come more like a stressful thing. So yeah. I but, think yeah. Uh, I mean, I always get really uncomfortable when people say like really nice things about the podcast, but thank you very much for for what you said. It's uncomfortable, one, because I'm not very good at taking compliments, but two, because um, I'm really, I do this for really selfish reasons, like really selfish reasons. Like, obviously I have a drive behind me to make work better, make work fairer. That is ingrained in me and has been for like from a childhood I always wanted fairer things like I, I hated yeah. unfair things um so there, there is a deep reason why I do this stuff but actually this podcast is solely selfish like I have learned so much like and I would not have been the person I am now if it was not for this podcast if it was not for talking to people like yourself that do put themselves out there on a blog just because you choose your media to be a blog and I choose my media to talk because it would take me 10 years to write a blog of your standard because I just couldn't do it. I struggle the same way that you do with words and, and spelling and grammar. Um, but just to say it, it, it took, it took me a long time and I had a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> I am intrigued. If you would prefer to draw something, I would like to see that. I would like to see somebody do that. I think that's a good thing. You think about what we've talked about 
in this cognitive diversity space. And I talk about this a, a lot of work. It's everything we do at safety is written down. Yeah. And there's and that only ticks the box for some people. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people, the majority of people are kinetic learners, they're visual and auditory learners. Yeah. That's not that's three different types that they are. So that means we're only satisfying a very small percentage of the society by writing everything down. That's why I love how popular podcasts are, I've got. Yeah. And, and, and you say we're not we're not human centered at the moment as, as general because we only produce output for. Yeah, exactly. A few yeah, everything so, is written. And, and there's, there's there's a certain podcast that I know that, that that had a bit of a monopoly in this space before that's that's not very happy about the amount of podcasts that are that are now out. And, and, and a lot of people ask me the same question, you know, or, you know, it's another podcast come up this week. You know, there's one like every week in the safety space. Now, you know, when I started, there was two in the UK and there was a handful around the world. Um, and it was like, Oh God, you know, it's really competitive now. Do you, do you, do you like that? And or, or what, you know, you're not worried. I'm like, no, I'm not worried. Like one, I still get to talk to these people. So I'm still learning and, and my audience is still growing, which is great. But the main, my main thing here is that, it's a good thing. And I've said this time and time again, like it's a good thing because there are people out there that love the way I talk about things. that love the way I question people. And there are people out there that fucking hate the way I talk to people that hate the way that I, that I kind of make my videos and interview people. And they love the way that, I don't know, Jay Allen or, Con, or, or, or Colin Nottage or Todd Conklin, you know, and there yeah. are people that like all of it and they mix all the things, that, but there are people that just can't stand the way that I do stuff. They don't listen to me. And that's fine because if it was just me and I had the monopoly of safety, what a horrible world we would live in if it was yeah. just me. It's a good thing from a cognitive diversity point of view to have so many of these podcasts, so many YouTube uh, videos. It's a great thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it, 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 it makes everything better and, mm. you know, it's, yeah, but it's just, just, you were saying, yeah, like writing really, I mean, I think it's not easy to write um, and, you know, I just feel with, with even with, with my, with my blog, it's, it's, for me, it's hard to, to promote it as well, mm. because, you know, I got a couple of likes on LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean, a couple of comments. I normally have a bit of, People who like my work, where I work here in Scotland, yeah, they really they like my inputs. But it's it's yeah, it, I think just to promote it, and I think any, I'm currently learning um, animation. Cool. So I want I want to do more like with animation. I, I'm, I'm fairly okay with doing like um, with with drawing and um, using vector drawing tools, things like that. I quite like this way because it, to me, easier. It, it takes more time even as writing. Yeah. But I think I reach more people to understand what I'm trying to say. Because it comes naturally to you, obviously. I've, yeah. I've, I think that's pretty clear to me. If that comes out, you know, a picture paints a thousand words, you know, is what they say, isn't it? But if, if, yeah. if, if it comes more naturally to you, then, then do that, man. I would love yeah. to see that. Yeah. Like love and, to see more pictures of, of like, I don't know. This is this is complexity theory in a painting or a drawing. Like for me, I would be like, "Shit, that makes sense," and I would I prefer just, to look at that. I just did that, 
actually exactly what you see. Amazing. I want to see it. I, I can explain you complexity theory with mountains and stuff. If you want the session at some point, just let me know. We can, Definitely. we can, we can, it's, it's where we, not, not today, but we can, I can prepare something and, you know, maybe if, if you're interested in that, just talk a bit more about what I learned from complex system theory. I'm not an expert. I'm not Scott Page and, but I would really recommend Scott Page's book. He's maybe, am I allowed to show a book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this one here really is. Diversity bonus. Scott. And I find it's a bit more technical than Matthew's book. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, it's still for a wider, it's, his other books are then very much complexity theory, which it's a bit technical but a bit complex yeah <laughs> but i mean i i started with this one so i i read, read all of his books and whatever i can get through audible i get you know yeah yeah, yeah. my throughput there is about 10 times larger than when i read it so oh, wow see i really this interesting because i struggle with audible if it doesn't it doesn't stick in my i get too distracted like i'll listen to audible whilst i'm on a walk or something and i and i can't I just can't get it to stay in. Whereas reading a book, I it stays in a little bit more. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know why. I normally have both. I I, I read uh, a chapter and I normally read uh, listen to it on on when I walk when I walk. Oh, okay. What the and, same book? You'll yeah, and then I normally yeah they make quite a lot of money from me because I buy I buy the, oh, the electronic awesome. book, I buy the physical book, I buy the audio book. So oh my god, but everything helps me in a way to work you know so like the the electronic book i can just search for something and that's oh yeah. it was there yeah. but then i normally go through if really a book i really like i create a complete mind map and take it all into bits and oh, and you know that's cool i like link that. it to other books things like that so but when i go for a walk i normally stop every now and again to oh i need to put a mark in here oh that's interesting and then yeah yeah <laughs> i'm the weird guy in my village and walks around oh no i need to put that that's interesting <laughs> you be careful mate weird guy in a, in a small village in scotland you build a reputation that, yeah that never go away in a village of scotland yeah <laughs> right mate i'm gonna shoot i'm gonna let you go as well yeah um, very good that was, was brilliant thank you very much for the, the invite and if you want to have a chat about complex complex system theory in graphical ways i'm not quite finished yet with it but i want to so, when that when you finish i want to see it i want to talk about it i want to do the whole thing i'm intrigued i'm excited i think that is we need more stuff like that i think that's great brilliant very good. Okay, where, that, that where gives can, me motivation um, to get it finished. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. The best place that people wanted to read your stuff is at your LinkedIn page. Yeah, I have it featured on there. So, or maybe I don't know where you would you be able to feature it when when you yeah put the podcast on. Yeah, we'll just you know it. that's the, the thing I wrote and yeah, we'll link. I mean, the, the I sometimes, go on, go on. Yeah. I, I sometimes like you know I like every critique. You know, I just find it the worst, you know, if people don't really look at it. But you can you can be um, critical about my work. Mm-hmm. Then we can, we can start with a discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's like, yeah, give me a thumbs up if you if you like it. Or let me know. Or if you disagree with something, you know, please write it in. And, I mean, let's have a chat. And yeah. disagreement isn't a bad thing. 
No, definitely. As long as that person's not being a dickhead about it. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is like, you know, needs to be civilized, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Very true. So I will link this, the, the article that we, that we were talking about, human-centered organization in this, and I'll link your LinkedIn as well so people can get hold of you, mate. But thank you very much. Yeah, for the brilliant. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Christian. He's a lovely guy. I could talk to him all day as I could with most of my guests, really. Uh, again, apologies, Christian, that this was recorded so long ago. Before you go, um, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a rate and review on whatever platform you're listening to, if you can, or subscribe or a follow. Or maybe you can think of one person that would really benefit from listening to my conversation with Christian and share it with them. That would be really, really appreciated. Thank you very much, Paradigm Human Performance, for sponsoring Rebranding Safety Podcast and YouTube channel. And don't forget to go check out Project Miletium Mastermind Community, or if you want to try it out for free, you can message me or Colin Nottage. Otherwise, I'll catch you next week. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. Thank <laughs> you.